Welcome to the Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, today, we're lucky to have on the show Mr. Dan Bernstein. Dan is uh, currently an investment banker at Quorum Group, and prior to that was a, a multiple company founder. Dan, thank you, and welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a great honor. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we've um, we've known each other from way back. Um, Sand, I, you know, I think I think maybe we first got to know each other when you were working on Sandlot Games. So maybe it was before you had a company before Sandlot. No, that was that was my first startup, but that was back in two thousand two. Before that, I was um, uh, a variety of different roles. But I, I come from being a programmer uh, first. And I started in. Uh, uh, in uh, writing code for video game companies back in 90, geez, I don't know, back when the earth was warm and the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, 94, I believe. So that, That's how you grew up as a coder? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was a... I was you a, teach yourself? Yeah, well, no, I, I got my bachelor's in computer science. I, I made a deal with my parents. Basically, I wanted to pursue music and they said, well, if you want to do that, then you can pay your own way or uh, you can go get your bachelor's degree and then we can go in and uh, and uh, uh, and we'll help you out get the bachelor's degree, and afterwards you can do whatever you want. So I got my master's in music. So I'm also a composer on the side, um, but that's that's kind of how I wanted to uh, position my career is really to get into you know composing uh, music for uh, for film or video games or what have you. Uh, so I started out as a programmer because back in the day there were no positions for composers, uh, and uh, you know very quickly I. You know the 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 computer game industry obviously mushroomed and ballooned and became something even better and more interesting, uh, and so very quickly I became um, a composer for video games and doing sound design and composition. That's what brought me over here to uh, to Seattle. Uh, I was uh, doing this in Virginia, uh, and in Seattle I started working for a company called Monolith. I ran their sound department uh, and. Uh, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm the kind of guy that gets bored pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, I kind of hit the gra- glass ceiling when I was uh, running an audio department and, and, and running, uh, uh, you know, writing, you know, music for games and sound effect for games. And, uh, you know, I, it just kind of kind of started becoming repetitive. Um, and as soon as that happened, I just felt like I needed to move on and do something else. So I started getting into business development and licensing and kind of establishing um, uh, a publishing presence for Monolith. Uh, and, and that whole journey, this was in the late 90s, brought me to, this, to, the, to the, really the business side of, of, of software. Uh, and that uh, kind of took me through a number of different startups. Uh, and uh, I ended up at Wild Tangent, where I put together their, uh, their uh, essentially digital e-commerce strategy. Uh, the strategy that you know up till you know even today they're 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 using as as part of their uh, how they uh, monetize their the games there. So uh, happy to have help there, and and then that gave me the really the springboard to start up uh, Sandlot Games. Um, I built a number of games. They were the uh, exclusive publisher for the first versions of those titles, and from there I, I built on those titles and, and created uh, a company. Uh, first started out in in our spare bedroom. Uh, just like I'm sure a lot of your listeners, uh, whether it's garage or spare bedroom, I was too cheap to actually buy desks uh, for our, or too cheap or just broke. I mean, really, <laughs> I, that's, uh, you know, back then my, my wife was uh, 
uh, was supporting this whole endeavor. Uh, she was, you know, fresh out of law school, she was, so she was uh, in-house counsel for for a company. Uh, so she was she was really supporting this this whole crazy thing. And you know, we had these these tables that there were there were folding tables, and they were sitting in our spare bedroom in our townhouse. And um, over time, about three to four months, uh, you know, the developers were sitting on the, on opposite sides of the tables. But since they were plastic, they started to have a little bit of give to them. So then, then, then the you know, and that's back then the huge monitors, obviously the big computers. They started migrating toward the middle. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the for some reason toward the end of those six months, the uh, the developers started feeling very cozy next to each other, and they were <laughs> sitting right next to each other as the uh, uh, table started buckling in the middle. So. Um, you know, very familiar with that world uh, of starting up something from scratch and not knowing where your next paycheck is going to come from, and and building that. Um, so I built Sandlot Games into into a fairly large uh, uh, game developer. Uh, certainly one of the more um, uh, notable game developers who built games like Cake Mania and Westward and Tradewinds. And uh, I ended up selling it in 2011, uh, and uh, I I did bring in. Some uh, investors, there are notable investors in, in, in the Seattle area. Uh, good exit for everybody, uh, sold to Digital Chocolate. You know, unfortunately, Digital Chocolate then found itself in a situation where, um, you know, they, they couldn't really maintain um, uh, the business in the same level that they were before. And uh, one of the things that I learned about uh, games and why it's a great incubator for understanding what tech is all about is... The cycles of innovation and disruption in video games, uh, they're probably even faster than they are for the general tech industry. I always think the tech industry gets uh, completely reinvented every four to five years. Um, in the games industry, that's probably the cycles around one or two years. You know, So <clears throat> we got off of the download game phenomenon that was really popular in the 2000s, and then all of a sudden... Uh, mobile games were really hot, and then within just a couple of years, it's Facebook games, and then within a couple of years, once again, mobile games with the advent of the iPhone. So, very rapid changes, and you know, I've learned to to basically roll with the punches and innovate ahead of the curve, and all the things that you have to learn to be a software entrepreneur. Um, and you know, in, in, and then during the time since we were successful, we've had a number of offers, and I and I actually started enjoying. Um, kind of the, the things that were coming in and, and learning how to, you know, how to position my company for sale and, and do all those things. So, you know, I kind of started recognizing something in myself that I know, I now know about, you know, being, uh, being an investment banker myself, that uh, I'm one of these weird people that are actually enjoying the, you know, the, the prospect or the, the, the process of selling the business. Um, and so, you know, when we did sell it in 2011, <clears throat> eventually we, um, Eventually, I exited uh, the business completely. We started. Uh, I started another business called uh, UpTap, and there was a lesson to be learned there. Uh, I started it as a free-to-play uh, company, mobile game studio. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about that experience is that uh, it taught me that really lightning can strike twice, um, and that's true for everything. Uh, you know, when you're looking at it, uh, the market moves on. The games move on. You're, you're, I guess you're the way that you are as an individual, as a person, as a founder, you move on as well. And I recognize that probably my, my, my time and my interest is, is better parlayed into a whole new endeavor. And this is where I, when I became an investment banker for, for a quorum group. At first, I was on the advisory board there. Uh, you know, I've known uh, some folks there for a long time. And, um, you know, I was, I was really happy to join. Yeah. 
That's a great story. So you have you definitely come out the investment banking, pers- you know, perspective from a, a unique spot, right? Because how many how many folks in your industry have done what you did? I mean, that's kind of a fun, fun way to be, right? You can you can actually re- probably remember what it was like to be in the in the in the in the company's you know CEO's spot and trying to figure things out. And sometimes yeah. it's not always easy when it's you, right? It's probably much easier when you're helping somebody else and it's them than when it's you. Do you, did you see that yourself when, like when it was you and you were in the, in the, in the CEO, the founder spot, was it, did you find it hard to maybe kind of think strategically about your business or did that kind of come naturally to you? No, absolutely does not come naturally. And that's one of the things that I think I'm, I'm able to help is because I, I understand both sides of the equation. I understand what it's like to, you know, to go and, and basically just be knee deep in the muck as you're trying to make it from day to day, right. uh, trying to operate the business. And I also see the other side, which is unless you keep your eye on where you want the business to be in the next three to five years, including a possible acquisition or uh, in certain cases, obviously, it's not an acquisition, it's a raise or whatever. Uh, then I think you're you're missing the greater opportunity. But then if you're too far on the strategic side, you're not in the operational right. side. It's a super hard job. You got to got to somehow do both. Yeah, you exactly. Somehow be in the weeds, and then also somehow get out of the weeds and look around and kind of like look at the landscape and kind of make judgments about where things are going. Yeah. So, Mike, does this sound familiar to you? Yeah, I think you know every entrepreneur could use some more insight into sort of what the process looks like in selling a company, and and uh, I'm curious to know sort of what. Dan, what your day to day looks like helping companies get sold? You know, what does that what does that process look like? How how do you um, at what stage do you typically start to engage with a company? Um, do you approach them and say, "Hey, we have a marketplace that uh, there there are buyers that are interested in companies that do what you do," or is it is it more driven by the uh, uh, like kind of which direction do the do the deals go? Um, all that stuff would be interesting to hear about. Sure. Uh, well, I think I'm very fortunate uh, with Quorum uh, because we we have a process that works, which includes um, uh, a, a number of uh, 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 of seminars that we give all around the world. Uh, so there is a tremendous marketing arm that uh, I speak to a number of companies that I think no one reaches uh, because it's still a very much a face to face conversation. Uh, uh, and, 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 you know, when we put on these uh, M&A seminars, whether it's a merge briefing or, or selling up, selling out, which is a long form version of, of uh, a boot camp that talks about what is it like from soup to nuts to actually sell your company? How do you prepare for it? How do you position it for it? How do you market it? Uh, and all the processes that, that happen at due diligence and post uh, uh, until closing. All these things are really new to to our, our companies. So uh, the companies that go to these events are, are at least thinking about it. Uh, and even if they're not ready for it, I still have the conversation with them. And maybe is a is an ongoing conversation that goes on for years and years and years. That happens. You know, we've uh, I've taken on companies that that are not ready to sell, sell, and I'm just actually just having a conversation with them, not really engaged with them in any way. But when they're ready, we take them on, and uh, we we have a very structured way of thinking about it, where we try to drive uh, the most. Uh, uh, the biggest kind of funnel of buyers into the into the conversation, and we do it in a very systematic fashion. Where 
you know, you've got a group of buyers that are, are really kind of the, the unknowns to you, and they're the ones that we do go out there and we talk to first. Uh, and obviously, the ones that are more strategic, the ones that are on that short list, uh, that if you're running a company, you know what that short list is, um, we, we get to those uh, toward the end. And as a result, you know, we get a comprehensive set of offers, and we'll work through that. We... we um, uh, with, we'll run a pretty thoughtful uh, auction to, to basically get the best possible uh, outcome that we can for our clients. Yeah, that's always struck me as the hardest part of this thing, which is the timing. Yeah. It's almost like selling a business is like, uh, it's almost like a, it's almost like you're cooking something in the kitchen. I mean, the things that come off, the things that have to come off the stove or into the oven, everything has to come in together at sort of the right, because it doesn't help you at all if you like, you start the process and you get a great offer, but it's, it's too early to, that's right. To have other offers to compete with it. I've seen that a lot actually in my career where somebody maybe isn't even trying to sell their business uh, and they get an offer. And then, I mean, what, what do you what do you tell people in that circumstance? Say, say Mike's, I mean, just for fun, Mike, we'll use you as, a, as our example, but say Mike just today, just randomly, someone just sent him a term sheet to buy his business and it's your typical term sheet. It's, you know, 45 day exclusivity clause. Price looks good, but Mike's got really no idea what his business is worth. Um, and it's too late to run a process against that term sheet because that term sheet's only going to be good for a few days. What do you tell people in that spot? Uh, well, first, don't sign it. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so let's pause on that because I, the, the, what I try to tell people, and I'll, I like your feedback on this, but that, that moment in time before you sign the term sheet, and almost always the term sheet's got an exclusivity clause of some kind. Yes. Now, granted, it's just an exclusivity clause. You could let the the 30 or 40 day, days can run out and you can not, you can choose to walk away and then there's not, they're not binding. You're not binding yourself to sell the company, but that moment before you sell the term sheet, it's like your moment of almost, it's almost like your, your last great moment of leverage. Yeah. We, we, we always say at quorum and God, that is so much the case in my own career. Um, Nothing good happens from uh, from the seller's perspective from the time you sign the term sheet until the closing. It just goes backwards. Everything goes yeah, backwards yeah, in there. Yeah, well, yeah. What's, what's one of the other sort of famous things? Oh, your average buyer is going to, on average, try to renegotiate the purchase price down at least seven times or something like that. It's, like, <laughs> it, it's true, and and you know we we have um, we have uh, really um, information that really you know a lot of times, especially the private equity firms put together term sheets very, very quickly, very preemptively, with right. the understanding that most of them are not going to transact. So you have to know. Do the diligence, they'll come back and say, well, we said 25 million, but really meant 18. Yeah, yeah. After looking at things, I mean 18. Yeah. Your EBITDA is not what we thought, or you know, your recurring revenue is not recurring revenue, it's follow-on revenue. Right. There's all kinds of ways that they can. And so the only way to... Um, you know, there are certain things that you want to make sure you do that d during this process of exclusivity with a buyer, and we can talk about those as well. But uh, prior to that, uh, your only leverage is to have multiple parties in the conversation. And how you orchestrate them, how you talk to them is very, very critical. Let me give you an example. So I'm flying out to talk to a buyer, and I'm walking in with three to four um offers that we've received in the business previously. Now, this buyer is one that's going to move very quickly if they're interested in acquiring the business, but I recognize that. And uh, with that, I wanted to make sure to reach out to all the ones that wouldn't move quickly. And we did that first before, um, before taking on this meeting. And that's 
that's the entire kind of art of the orchestration of the deal is that you want to make sure that you bring as many uh, parties as possible into the conversation. And uh, that, that requires a bit of uh, preparation and understanding about buyer processes and where you are in the, in the ecosystem. You know, a lot of times also, you know, you get uh, uh, a lot of it is calibration, right? So we talk to, uh, uh, you know, we talk to sellers and they say, oh, yeah, Microsoft is going to buy me or, you know, Amazon is going to buy me. Well, you know, we go in and I dig into the business and I say, well, probably not or maybe, but, you know, they're, they're going to take a very long time. You think that, you know, they're going to jump on the opportunity. But for the most part, here's a list of 20 or 30 other buyers that are more likely to buy you and probably at a premium. Yeah, and I think that's one thing where um, founders benefit maybe the most from bankers, which is, the bankers spend their whole life cultivating that group of prospective buyers, and founders don't know who they are. Right. And you can't find out who they are unless you spent your whole life cultivating them. So you're at a you're at a loss trying to do it yourself, really. Although sometimes doing selling a business yourself without a banker works out fine. Sometimes. Well, I, I think it works out well uh, when you're looking at an aqua hire. Um, I think you know bankers are. It's it's difficult for bankers to get involved in those scenarios when there really is only one buyer for your business. Uh, you, you know, for the most part, you don't know that unless you go through a process. But if you're you know if you're really looking to exit and you're saying, look, I've got uh, twenty thousand dollars in the bank. Here's a you know company that's going to buy me. I'm just going to get you know exit right now. Um, that's probably you know the best solution because. One thing that you have to remember is, and this is something that businesses, especially small companies, don't realize that, is that balance sheets they don't they don't factor into the conversation of of uh, M and A software M and A right. It's all about you know, your top line revenue, your bottom line. It's all about your projections, and it's all about the things that are going well in your business, right? So, I always um, counsel our companies saying something has to be going up and to the right. Um, you know, I, let's figure out what it is. It could be your user count. It could be your, uh, um, it could be your uh, revenue. I mean, it could be all these other things, right? You, you're you're maybe making so much money, and you're you're trying to uh, trying to grow the business, but EBITDA just keeps you know being fixed at forty percent, even though you're growing twenty to thirty percent year over year. Wow, that's a great problem. Uh, but for the most part, something has to be going up and to the right. If it's not, especially when you're running out of cash, that's when. Uh, the buyer is going to negotiate against your balance sheet. They recognize that you have a very short leash and they're going to use it against you. Right. Um, so that's that's something that you have to be aware of, right? So you have to, you know, the best time to sell is when things are going well for your company. Uh, I've learned it in my own business in Sandlot Games and I've, you know, time and time again that has been uh, proven itself out in, in, in our engagements with Quorum. Hmm. So Mike, what, what, what are your thoughts at this, at this point? Yeah, I think... Um I guess uh, I'm curious to know how uh, you know how you made that shift from uh, from startup into the uh, into investment banker world. So did you did you know, you had already been working with the folks that you're working with now? And I mean, what what was that? Uh, what was the transition like? Well, I think uh, as a as a individual, I'm uh, intellectually uh, uh, constantly thirsty, um, and I think that uh, an understanding of technology. Uh, is really critical, uh, and I always I always told my um, uh, uh, my developers, you know, I you know I may not be um, an engineer that can write code uh, and and be able to do all the things that you guys are able to do, but here's what I am able to do: I've got a good BS meter 
So I know when, you know, you're pulling the wool over my eyes and I, I can sense that, okay, this is, this is a really cool technology or this is something that is uh, commoditized. And so that understanding is, is really critical. But also I think what's also critical is that, um, you know, you've got, you've got that intellectual curiosity that is, is, is not satiated by a single type of company, right? So I, I kind of, I kind of got a little bored of the games industry, right? So I, I wanted to see what else I could do. Uh, and, you know, at any point in time, uh, at any day, including today, I'll be talking to five to seven companies in a variety of different industries, whether it's, you know, uh, logistics route optimization to uh, uh, CRM to, um, uh, to social networking. Uh, to sometimes in games, right? I still, I still look at games companies and selling those as well. But it's, it's the, the, the breadth of those different types of companies that really excites me and the ability to learn all about that industry in a very quick, uh, uh, quick, uh, uh, way. Uh, and, and I think what's important is that unless you come from an IT background, it's very difficult for someone that comes out of a kind of traditional banking to really understand the technological implications, especially as to how that technological implication can be a growth factor for an acquirer. Um, and I think that that is really, really critical when you look at smaller companies and how those smaller companies are going to be, um, you know, uh, selling themselves to uh, a bigger buyer. Uh, you know, the, the, the leverage may not have anything to do with their finances. It may have to do with the fact that, look, I've got three salespeople. And I've got a piece of software that you have 30 salespeople. So automatically you can get right out of the gate a 10x, um, uh, multiple, well, 10x multiple on the revenue just by, you know, taking my software and being able to resell it through your channels. Understanding that a priori, uh, a conversation that you would have with a buyer, uh, and using that to your advantage as a seller is really critical. Again, you don't have those conversations until you actually understand how technologies could be complementary to one another. And that's where having that IT background, having that uh, computer science background is really critical. For me, I just I just have a ball. I have a blast. I've always been sales driven. I've always been business development driven. My two jobs uh, in college were, <clears throat> uh, first one was, uh, I was, you know, I was doing programming and that type of thing for, um, I think it was for Xerox back then. It was in, in, in high school. But uh, during the times that I wasn't doing that, I was actually doing telemarketing. Uh, so, uh, selling stuff over the phone. Selling stuff over the phone. And now I was you're selling stuff over the phone. Special, <laughs> special Olympics. It hasn't changed. You know, you got to go back you to gotta, your roots. You sell, well, I think that's <laughs> great. I think that's actually great. Um, I mean, tell, just find out selling. I sold stuff door to door for a short period of time, and you learn like yeah. some amazing things. <laughs> yeah, you you learn about psychology. You learn about people. You you learn. Well, you learn to have a thicker skin, and that's that's I think really important, uh, especially in our industry. Here. Right. It's also it, it also really focuses you on hey, we really need to build something really good that that that's easy to sell because if you have something really great, well, it makes the salesperson's job a lot easier, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't sell anything, and I don't believe in. I'm not going to take on a company that I don't think is is all of that, right? There, you know, there are companies that are you know million, million and a half that I look at, or even less than that. And I'm like, this thing is just hot. We it absolutely is going to be interesting. Sometimes I'm even wrong. Though it's small, even though it's small, even though it's small, even it's though it's small. So tell us about that. What are the what are the things that, from a trend point of view, right now, get you kind of excited? Well, yeah, I, I'm starting to see a lot more in uh, visual analytics, uh, and I think the convergence of visual analytics, AI, and uh, computer vision 
are, are very, you know, those those are very exciting trends, and what we call as uh, uh, internally, we've coined the phrase as visual visual intelligence uh, at Quorum. Uh, so this this visual intelligence, the ability to see things and 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 both uh, analyze them and create actionable information, you know, from retail, right? So the Amazon store is a perfect example, right? Their their new retail location. Um, amazing bookstore. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think it's such an amazing bookstore because they have all that data about what people like. Yeah. I mean, I it's I think it's the best bookstore I've ever been in because every everything you look at you're like, "Wow, that looks that looks like a great book." And then you're like, "Whoa, that that's a great book." I mean, every single book is a, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, and it, it's that. It's the fact, you know, it's, it's it, not just from the consumer perspective, but also from, you know, being able to understand what's on the shelves, right? If you can, uh, instead of, you know, uh, uh, scanning everything, if you can just look at the shelf and know, okay, well, these these are the products that belong there. This is what's missing. This is what you need to restock. That's the stuff that's been there for a long time on the shelf. Uh, in, in visual surveillance, being able to recognize faces, uh, in a crowded environment and be able to tag uh, whether or not someone is a suspect or, a, you know, someone who's a, a person of interest, uh, obviously, in the times that we live in today are, are very, you know, very important uh, uh, technologies. And, and, and all these things are coming, coming together. I mean, I, I think you're coming to a point where uh, you may start seeing, you know, video become um, a utility like you would, you know, gas or anything else, right? So, so tell me more about that. What do you mean? Uh, well, basically, data—the sharing of data across um, multiple parties, right? Whether okay. it's whether it's uh, uh, a, a, a surveillance uh, uh, feed that's being you know triggered through uh, police. Uh, the same feed may be used for uh, counting the number of people that walk through uh, a turnstile in, in an airport, right? So there, are, there, are this this convergence of data and being able to action. Uh, or act on that data intelligently and very rapidly in real time, uh, I think is really, really critical and very, very interesting. It makes, um, makes sense in a way. I mean, the cameras are getting cheaper and cheaper and more prevalent. And so it's just a matter of time before there's eyes literally everywhere. And uh, But people can't watch all those cameras. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's the it's the artificial intelligence behind it. It's the analytics. It's the big data component. Uh, all these factors are starting to become um, kind of really catalysts for the ability to use this technology in a much more intelligent way. And we live in a crowded world. We live in a more dangerous world, obviously. So these are some of the things that are, uh, I think, interesting. And it, it it crosses everywhere. Right. It's everything from. Um, from crowd control to knowing exactly how many people are in a certain location to, um, you know, to uh, retail, to uh, uh, counting cars, to license plate recognition. Uh, there's all these things that are that are, I think, really interesting. So what yeah. you're saying is you're going to have you're going to have um, multiple. I mean, just multiple different uh, stakeholders accessing the same video for different reasons running their intelligence against the video feeds for different reasons. You might have the police running it for one one thing, but you might have a private business entity accessing the data for other for other purposes. And so you're just going to see sort of a sharing of that utility of the video. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that, I think that, that it's an interesting trend. I think you've got other trends in um, – and obviously AR, uh, I think, uh, you know, when I look at VR, I think it's kind of, I think in a rear view mirror, obviously that there's been a number of companies here locally uh, that have tried it, uh, especially tried it for enterprise. And it feels like mobile in uh, 2000, 
right? Pretty, uh, pretty yeah. nascent. Yeah, yeah. It feels like it feels like the first attempt to do something that the market is not ready to do. Uh, I think if you get to a point where you get into a cockpit and you see start seeing pilots wearing, you know, Hololens, uh, controlling it through an environment in which they're, you know, flipping on and off uh, dummy buttons, but those buttons are actually doing something in that AR environment. Uh, then you start seeing the opportunity for in the enterprise being very, very strong. Uh, and it's it's all of the stuff that I think uh, being able to combine a living environment with a um, uh, with a, uh, a virtual environment and combine those things together uh, and being able to do it in a in a seamless fashion, uh, I think that's where it gets really, really exciting. Uh, and there's I, I can see multiple opportunities with that. So most of the Mike, Mike, I was going to say, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead, Mike. Well, I, I was going to change gears a little bit. Um, I, I had a couple questions I want to ask. I know we're running close close to to time. Uh, I was curious to know what your thoughts are about subscription versus non-subscription or recurring revenue versus non-recurring revenue. A lot of folks that are starting businesses have to think about what their business model looks like. And I've talked with uh, other investment bankers um, and have heard some really interesting numbers about you know, how, how a subscription or recurring business can really drive a huge multiplier of what you would, what, what your, uh, you know, uh, price would be like multiplier of revenue, for instance, um, for a, for a subscription or recurring revenue business versus a non-recurring revenue business. And I always thought that number was really interesting. Have you seen anything like that? Like, what do you, do you, do you see a huge difference between what you can, uh, you know, what you can get for a recurring revenue business versus a non-recurring revenue business? Yeah, and it's. I think a lot of lot of it is kind of all very traditional banking, uh, and I, I think it's really the tip of the iceberg. But it's it's something that you have to address, right? Because if if, if uh, you know if a company is investing X into you and they're trying to get X times Y, the times Y is the um, uh, I guess the equation that they're going to do to figure out what is the value time uh, value of their investment across the time that you have that recurring revenue, uh, you know, minus the churn that you have in the business. So recurring revenue is critical to understand for, for companies to be able to present, um, you know, bona fide uh, offers to you. And those multiples tend to be much higher. Uh, you know, basically, if you if you look at uh, the multiples that, uh, or I guess the, the, the highest multiples that you receive, it is for um, a recurring software revenue with very limited um, service uh, components to it, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's a very kind of straight SaaS businesses are the ones that have highest multiples. But if you have a SaaS business in a in a, in a uh, vertical that is not all that interesting, or you have SaaS business that really is oh, okay, well that's kind of yeah, that's kind of ho hum. Maybe it's very limited. At the end of the day, uh, it's really what you have as a, as as a software company. Uh, if you can figure out to monetize it via SaaS, uh, that is your best bet, right? Uh, and you know, I encourage everyone to look it up and see what exactly what that means. But to 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 monetize it via a recurring revenue stream with as little service burden as possible will yield you the best multiple on the business long term uh, as you build it. Uh, however, if you're you know one and a half, you know two million dollars, uh, you're still building your business. You're like, okay, well, you know, how am I going to do this? Uh, I think you're, the first critical thing that you need to figure out is what am I building? Why is it relevant? Why is it revolutionary? Uh, and those are the questions that come a priori to figuring out how am I going to get this nice recurring flow. If you can answer the first question, what am I building? How is it revolutionary? How am I changing the world with this new technology that I'm building? If you can figure that out, then figure out a way to monetize it next. 
Uh, but if you have, if you don't, if you can't figure out number one, number two is not going to matter. Makes sense. And I guess the last question I had uh, before we wrap up is sort of when is the right time for folks to be thinking about reaching out to an investment banker? You know, when do you like to start talking with folks? I guess, you know, it's always a question for startups. How far along the, in the process should they be when they start thinking about um, making their first step toward uh, toward some kind of acquisition? You start feeling, feeling it in your gut. And this is where I, uh, you know, I kind of go with kind of the way that I thought about it when I was at Sandlot. You start sensing that there is a uh, there is a market for your company um, based on just the conversations that you're having with partners. You know, maybe you've got some sales manager goes in and says, oh, we should buy you. Well, that sales manager is not going to be able to do anything with that. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, okay, it's just, you know, he's not going to write it, you know, $50 million check for you, right? So, but what it is indicative of is that you you are now obtaining a position in the market which is enviable and interesting and you know perhaps you should start looking at what that means it may not be you know may not be that you're ready to go to market but it is the time for you to start exploring that opportunity and it's 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 that sense that you get that you've you haven't reached it yet um but you are well in your way and i think that's when you when you need to start thinking about quickly figuring out how to position your business and getting everything together and obviously having the data room and looking at your contracts and making sure that you're you're buttoned up so when the time comes when you're you know say okay i'm i'm ready to do it then um then you do it the worst time to do it is when you're you know, when you've crested that wave and you're on the other side of that wave and things are just not looking all that great anymore so a lot of times we get phone calls from companies saying, you know what, um, we're, you know, our sales are going down. We're not doing all that well. So I think now is the time to sell. Well, you know what? <laughs> I'm sorry. The time to sell was when the things were going really well for you. Uh, uh, that was your opportunity. Um, and clearly, you know, looking at the kind of general market trends, seeing where things are headed, uh, you know, we always think about uh, markets having this this following the, the, the NASDAQ uh, from basically the activity in the M&A cycle. Uh, so, so when you see things do, going well, uh, that's, that's the time to sell. Right now, we're in a very unique market. I have yet to see uh, deals uh, in the last year that weren't uh, all or mostly cash. Um, and that's not the case. Certainly, you know, if you guys remember, of course, you, you remember back in 2000s, what kind of crazy deals we had, you know, with public stock and, you know, 2008 with earnouts and, um, you know, so structure is really important. Uh, and structure also follows how much cash there is in the market. And there's a tremendous amount of cash in it right now. Huh. Interesting. So, yeah, so most of the deals you see are just cash deals. Yeah. Yeah. For good companies. Again, you know, it's... Um, if you've got a great technology, if you figured out how to make it recurring, how you you know defeated the service burn aspect of it, um, and there is a real market, uh, and especially we have these uh, top ten technology trends that we will talk about in our annual report that's coming up in Quorum or uh, uh, this week. So, you know, I I think there's there's a there's if you figured out how to crack the nut on that, and if you're if you've if you've built a great business around it, uh, as far as structure. Uh, I think uh, we've seen the best structured deals uh, recently, more so than than probably in any point in history. So, uh, folks want to get a hold of you. How do they? How do they get a hold of you? Uh, you they can reach me by email, danb at quorumgroup.com. Uh, I'm I'm like I said, I, I love talking early to companies. 
Uh, earlier is fine. It's like it's like uh, it's like when you go to a barber and he cuts your hair, right? So he cuts your hair a little bit too long to make sure that you're okay with it. But if he cuts your hair too short, well, it, you know, there's no going back, right? So if you've if you've got if you've kind of crested that wave and now okay, well, things are kind of starting to kind of fall off the fall off the the skis a bit. Um, yeah, you're kind of too late. So let's let's make sure that you're – I'd rather talk to you too early. I'd rather talk to you when you're still a startup and you're trying to figure out how to build that business uh, before you've, you know, you've kind of, uh, you, you know, you've gone on the other side. What, when's the next, uh, like, local, like, Pacific Northwest merge uh, or, uh, you know, merge uh, – merge, uh, or your, uh, your other presentations, your other public – when's the next one? Do you have one planned yet? Yeah, no, we, I encourage folks to go to quorumgroup.com and, okay. uh, and uh, get uh, – uh, take check out the, uh, the presentation schedule that we have on there. Uh, we do have our annual report coming up this week. I encourage folks to also sign up for that and uh, – uh, and uh, I look forward to talking to as many of you as, as, as want to reach out to me. Uh, I'm very excited about what I do, and, um, you know, it's really a, really a fantastic opportunity. That's Fun great. Stuff. Well, thanks for being on the show, Dan. It's been, uh, it's been great having you. And uh, everyone else, uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for having me.